Good morning. And welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is January the 15th. We are officially one halfway for the first month of the year. So 2023 is still going. I'm still writing 2022 on my checks. Anyway, we continue in the book of John, the John's Gospel. Uh, last week, we encountered Jesus as he changed the first institution, the institution of marriage. Now he goes to the heart of faith, to the temple. If you wanted to follow along in your pew hymnal, Bible, I always do that. It's page 751. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to the temple. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves, and others sitting at table, exchange, tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them out from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins, the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Blessed is the word. Amen. So one of the things we do a lot in, in seminary, and this is not unique to seminary, this is, you know, I know any any. Anybody who's had to ever take an ethics course for, for education or anything comes across these, therapists, you know, even in high school, I remember these, but case studies. This idea that, that you, you get some scenario, something that may have happened in the past, you don't know, they've changed names and locations, and you read over them and, and try as hopefully a group, figure out what what people did right, what people did wrong, or what they should do moving forward. Now, usually, you know, they were scrubbed. They were made up or, or, or you know, you just didn't know any information about them. That was the way it was meant to be. But I had an interesting set of case studies kind of fall into my lap in real life during one semester. Now, at the time, I was, was interviewing people for a, uh, for a project at school. And so I was going out and asking people about their faith stories. And, and there's this one woman who 
is just one of the most amazing people I've ever met. I still enjoy her Facebook posts, which are mostly cats, but they're good, funny cat posts. Okay, let's face it, the internet's like, what, half cats at this point? Anyway. So, she was telling me her story. She grew up Roman Catholic, was really active in her, her, her congregation, uh, but as she got older, she, she didn't always agree with what the priests said, and you know, some real hard issues with them, and she found herself pulling away and becoming really connected with a local convent and, and talking and hanging out with them a lot, but she still went to the church. She still considered herself Roman Catholic. And then she went to her uncle's funeral. Her uncle had been very, very involved in his church. Been attending there ever since he was born. He was like 86 years old. And the priest had been there for about 10 years. The priest didn't know a single fact about her uncle. And that really upset her. But that wasn't the final straw. As she left the church after the funeral, she noticed a sign in the lobby. And the sign read, that if you wanted cash for your for offerings to go to the pharmacy across the street. They had an ATM there. And then she learned that the reason they have this partnership is that they would get they would send people over to the pharmacy. The pharmacy would make more money by having the church parishioners being directed over there, and they would be giving an extra amount of money to the church. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot of like what Jesus got mad about. This relationship over money. I mean, yeah, sure, they weren't set up in the church, but an advertisement is more than close enough in my mind. That was the final straw for her. Just one bad thing on top of another, and she's like, nope, not going Catholic. I'm, I'm done with the church. Now, the end of the story is that she met two of the other most loveliest people I've ever met in this world who invited her to come to worship with them at a Church of the Brethren in the area, and she fell in love with that church. She's now super active, which is a story about saying, if you got a friend who's unchurched, bring him to church. But that was a side story. We'll put that back over there. Now, at the same time, in my leadership class, we are exploring what it means to be a leader in the church and exploring what it means to be a leader in different styles of ministry. So we had, you know, some really standard things, you know, you know, the, pre, the, the pastor from the local Presbyterian church, a priest from the local Lutheran church come and talk to us. But we, we also had people from nonprofits who are providing ministry outside the normal box. We had people who were doing house churches. We had people who were doing churches that looked nothing like the churches we know. Now, one of them who came, it was a, a, a gentleman um, who, who had begun his own church in Lancaster. It was an uh, independent Baptist church. And, and this woman who was the administrator for the church, you know, the person who basically ran the church for him. Now, it had started as a house church meeting in the southern section of Lancaster City. Now, Lancaster City, um, like a lot of big cities, you know, we, there are areas that are predominantly poor. And this was an area that was predominantly poor and predominantly people of color. 
It was, for all intents and purposes, the ghettos. It was not the place you wanted to walk around at night if you weren't a part of the community. They begun the church down there, and it thrived. It grew. They very quickly ran out of spaces to meet. So they raised up money and bought some land and were intending to build a new church for themselves. Still, within their, their, their community, that was very purposeful. They didn't want to move away from where the people were. So, as they were building, they brought in members of the, of the church who lived in that community and said, what all do we need in here? What, what, what do you need in a church? And some of them said, well, I need child care. Or, you know, even if it's just to drop off the kids for two hours so I can run errands or, you know, go visit my mom at the hospital or whatnot. Or, you know what, I... I can't get groceries anywhere. You know, this area is a, what we call a food desert, meaning if you don't have a car, and a lot of people who live in cities don't have cars, you know, you can't easily go to the grocery store. You know, you end up paying for what you get at the gas station or the, the pharmacy. And I don't know about you, I hate buying food at the pharmacy. It's way too expensive and never good quality. Never the same quality, at least. You know, or, you know, I, I can't get, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm having problems because I don't have a bank. You know, it's a bank desert. No banks. I mean, think of it from an executive's point of view. Would you put your bank in an area that's predominantly poor? Probably not. It's not a financially sound idea. But at the same time, you end up with this community who has no access to savings, no access to a safe place to put your money you don't have to worry about people stealing it. No access to credit. You know, if, if their car breaks down, they don't have access to, you know, get a $500 of credit unless they do a payday loan, and then you end up paying out the nose for it. So they built this church. And inside the church building, and it's a massive building, inside the church building, there is a place where you can go have your taxes helped with. There is a child care you, um, place that runs all day. You pay by the hour. You know, drop your kids off. You know, I, I'm, be back in 30 minutes. You pay for half an hour. You know, there is a place, um, there, there is, they, once a, or every single day or a couple times a week, they have a shuttle service that takes people to the local grocery stores and then drops them off back at home so they don't have to lug their groceries on and off a bus. They put a bank in the church. An honest-to-goodness bank is inside that church. Now, I have to say, after we had the discussion, we asked our questions, they left. You know, we had our 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 our. our pros and our cons, you know, our criticisms and our praises of the church, that I was really stuck on this idea that they had a bank inside the church. Because to me, like, my first instinct was to go, well, that's not, like, completely against everything Jesus did in the temple, right? <laughs> that was sarcasm, by the way. Then I thought about it. Let me come back to what I thought about. You know, this story pops up every year because this story appears in all four Gospels. All four Gospels, J 
Jesus cleanses the temple. And in the other three, it's like right before he dies. In this one, it's right at the beginning of the story. It's John. It's the way John tells things. It's an institution story. Jesus meets with an institution, this one being the temple, and this is the reaction he has to the temple. Well, why was he mad? Well, we all know why he was mad. Again, this is like the third time I've told a sermon on this subject. The reason he is mad is because the temple has become corrupt. Because priests are rejecting the animals that are being offered, that people bring from home, forcing them to go buy animals at inflated prices from people they're getting kickbacks from. Because the money changers, who are there to make sure that you do not break God's commandment of bringing engraven images into the temple to make sure that you are able to pay your tithe properly, they're taking a cut. Not just a little cut. Not like we're just trying to survive, you know, make a, make a penny cut. But they're taking a big cut. It has become a place of greed. It has become a place of commerce whose sole purpose for pretty much everybody, including the priest, is to pad their wallets. So when I think about these two examples, these two case studies, and I think about that Catholic church, obviously it is against the commandment because it's a money-making venture for both groups. It's not about making it convenient for anybody. It's not about making sure people are able to worship God correctly. It's not about serving the community. It's about putting money in that church's coffers and putting money in the pharmacist's coffers. But when you consider that independent Baptist church, it's not about making money for them. You know, yeah, they receive money from the bank. They receive rent because it costs money to maintain the building. You know, and, and they're responsible. They are landlords. But whether the bank makes money or loses money doesn't matter to the church. The reason that there is a bank there is because their community needs it. Because it's something that the people around them lack, and so they're serving them. What is the focus of your church, of your worship, of your space? You know, when the temple was meant to be God's house, and it had become not God's house, it became preach, I don't know which piece it was at that point in time, Ananias or Caiaphas or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but it became priest Caiaphas moneymaker. And so Jesus goes out and cleans it, throws it all out. Which, you know what? No one ever talks about what happened on day two. Do you know what probably happened on day two? In they came with their doves and their money and their animals, and everything started back up. It didn't end when Jesus threw them out. Now, yes, they may have all been watching out for him because the guy made a whip. That's a little scary. Jesus doesn't whip anyone as far as we know. But still, have you ever been hit by a whip? It hurts. Oh, man, it stings. I've never been hit by an honest-to-goodness whip, but I have been whipped by things. 
and it's not fun. Yes, I was a junior high boy who went to the pool with his friends. I have been whipped. Towels. Anyway. Yeah, they probably were watching out for Jesus and being careful. And then comes the transformation. Jesus tells them to tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, you know, at the time we, you know, John doesn't even let us figure it out. <laughs> John's just like, here's what he said, and here's the interpretation. I'm not even going to stick this at the end. I'm just going to tell you right now. It's Jesus' body is the temple. I love how John doesn't trust us to figure it out, but hey. Not everyone could read back in those days, and if it took a long time to read the gospel, you might forget. So, you know, tear down this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they all think it's the actual building, which took 46 years to build. And had been just finished last about the time Jesus was born, give or take a decade. Uh, probably a little earlier in decade. Because Herod the Great was the one who rebuilt the temple as it was. And this is probably the most glorious this temple has ever been. It probably even outshined Solomon's temple. I mean, the Jews of those days probably wouldn't say that, but just understanding that Herod dumped a ton of this ton of money in there, and he was one of the wealthiest men in the Roman Republic or Empire at that point. You know, of course, I mean, they're they're very incredulous. I I don't think if we, you know, even if we brought in all of our Amish and Mennonite neighbors and we tore down this church, which is dinky compared to the temple complex, we could not rebuild it in three days, right? I mean, at least not with the masonry. It might be more of a barn style, but hey, that's not bad. Anyway. So, important. Now, this is a real transformation. Now, what is the purpose of the temple in ancient Judaism? The temple is the seat of God. It's not the house of God exactly. It's easier to say house, but it's the seat of God, God's throne room. You know, there's the Holy of Holies, which is supposed to contain the Ark of the Covenant. It's gone missing since the Babylonians, but that's still considered the Holy of Holies, where God and the divine presence and the divine space of heaven and earth meet within that area. God, God is present. God is everywhere. But in ancient Judaism, God was not in you. You are separate from God. For Jesus to call himself the temple, that is crazy, absolutely insane to their mindset. You know, I talked about this when we, we did, you know, the word and whatnot. You know, that, that back in those days, they, they could not believe that somebody could be God and human. That, no, that God could be in a human body. In fact, even after Christianity took off, it took decades, centuries, before it was established that Jesus was human to everybody. There's like whole sects that break off and, and say, no, 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 Jesus was a vision. Everyone saw him, but he wasn't actually physically there. It was like a walking, talking God hologram. So, you know, that, that's crazy to consider 
himself the temple. Which brings us, brings us to the weird point within that. If the temple dies and raised back again, and then we believe that, that we each, through Jesus, inherit a bit of his spirit, that it's given to us, that we, we are the inheritors of the will of Jesus. It means we are temples, right? I mean, after all, we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, a place where the divine and the mundane meet. We are temples. We are a gathering of temples, holy beings. For that space was sacred. The place where God and humanity met was sacred and dangerous and powerful. And that's now contained in each of us within our hearts. Now, when Jesus came and talked about that and started to set up this precedent, precedent that will eventually come through, not precedent, foreshadowing that will eventually come through and, 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 and through the resurrection and transform in us and, and go on into the Pentecost. He's setting up something that is so completely different than what anyone has ever understood before. You know that whole saying, you know, my body's a temple. It is. Your body is a temple. Not the way you were thinking. Your body is a temple because it has God within it. I went off on a bit of a tangent because I got excited as I worked through this with you and I got excited when I was practicing and I'm still excited about this idea because I never really considered it until I talked it out a couple times. What does this mean? Because this is, this is Jesus meeting an institution you know, we, we, we don't have a temple anymore in terms of, of a place where we go to worship God. You know, we, we set up our churches, our church buildings, in ways that mirror the temples with courtyards and spaces. And, and you know, there's a holy area up here at the front. It's not exactly holy, but it is at the same time. I mean... If, if, if somebody came in here on a day when we weren't meeting and set up a big screen TV here and started playing Call of Duty, it's a war game, by the way, for those who, who don't know video games. You know, I would be a little upset. I feel like they were being unkind to my space. I, I imagine many of you would, right? I'm getting a few nods. Yeah. You know, if I had a bunch of young people in this room, like, Call of Duty up there, okay. But it reminds us that the purpose of worship, the purpose of sacred spaces, is it is a place for us to go and meet with God. Whether the space is actually sacred or not, we consider this sacred. We have made it sacred through our actions, through our prayers, through our purpose. We have made this sacred. You have made this sacred. You know, I, as I told the kids, I, I believe a lot in history in storytelling. 
And stories don't end in real life. Stories go on. They have continued. I have so many people in here who have so many stories about this space of memories, of, of coming up here, of making vows to another person, of going into the water and, and, and coming out and making vows to God, of celebrating a new baby, of seeing an old friend and laughing and chatting in the back, of making fun of Brother Dwayne together. We have so many great memories in this space. He's not even here for me to do that making fun of Brother Bruce together. There we go. It's a reminder that this space, this isn't here, this time, this space, it isn't here for you to worry about making money. It's not here for you to worry about making connections for your own needs. It's not here for you to, as I, we said in the call to worship, to judge others, to hold yourself back. Worship, coming together in community, is for being in community with one another and with God. Because after all, if each of us are temples, and each of us hold the Holy Spirit, and we recognize this is a special place where we get to connect more closely with God, and God is present here 100,000%, which is statistically impossible, but you know what I mean. When you're going from this space later, remember who you are. You are a walking temple. You're a walking flesh temple. <laughs> Sounds weird to say it that way, but that's who you are. You are one who contains the Holy Spirit within you, and you are going to meet a whole bunch of other temples walking around out there. Now, some of those temples might be pretty broken up and busted. Some of them may have columns lying to the side and be covered in black soot. Some of them may not know what's inside of them. Whether you go into a church that's filled with people, whether you go into an abandoned one, whether you go into one that is, what's the oldest in the U.S., probably two, three hundred years old at most, or you go into someone's house where they hold church, they're all sacred spaces, just as every one of those people is filled with the sacred spirit. Maybe that's a reminder that when we go out, all those worries, those concerns, yeah, they're still there. I'm, you're not going to get rid of them. Yeah, you need money to pay for your rent or your mortgage or your food or your gas. But to treat one another and to treat yourself as if you are still in church, that you do not treat others and yourself as merely ends to a mean, a means to an end, but instead as sacred places, as God's place where the divine meets the mundane. Thank you.
So go out knowing who you are and go out with a special prayer on your lips to God that Jesus will take some cords and make a whip and shove out of you all those things you need to shove out of you. It'll be a lot less painful in the end. May you go out knowing that you are containers of the Holy Spirit. May you go out recognizing that there are many all men.